Let's open up his precious word, if you will. I would invite you to take your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 11. Matthew chapter 11, as we return to our verse by verse exposition of the gospel of Matthew, we've been away from it for some weeks as I've been in Africa, but this morning we want to return to it and glean so many of the wonderful things that we can find in the treasure house of the infallible record. Before we look at the text this morning, may I remind you that we live in a culture that is obsessed with celebrities. We live in a culture that worships stars. We've all seen the Olympics here the last several days. And the Olympic athletes have received many of their medals now and they're going to be paraded through the streets. And I'm not saying that that's bad necessarily in and of itself, but it's amazing to watch how our culture is obsessed with certain kinds of people. Country music stars. We have our fanfare fair here in Nashville. And you all know when the fans come from all around, you can't hardly drive through downtown. People come to somehow get an autograph or to get a picture or to be able to shake the hand of their favorite star. We have rock stars and we have Hollywood stars. I think they've got their own walk of stars, as I recall, in in Hollywood. And, of course, they're forever giving themselves awards. And we have football stars, basketball stars. And on and on it goes. And you see idolatrous sycophants swarming to somehow, as I say, get their autograph or they collect their cards, have their posters in their rooms, even adopt their immoral clothing and lifestyles very often. And I notice that even at times adults will wear the athletic jersey of their favorite sports hero with that person's name on it. I guess vicariously living out their own stardom through their hero. And then you have the paparazzi that will do anything possible to get a picture because they make hundreds of thousands of dollars selling these pictures to the media so that we can all have a glimpse of the star. And then even in the Christian circle, we find many times naive Christians adopting the same idolatry of the world. And they will do the same types of things with especially Christian musicians and other so-called celebrities. After having been in contemporary Christian music for about 10 years and knowing it inside out, I have to say that for the most part, these people have egos as big as Texas. They're all sizzle and no steak. Very seldom do you find people of real substance, and yet they are worshipped as if they're gods. Many times their theology is shallow, is as shallow as water on a plate. Very little humility, no spiritual depth, and yet we worship them. And of course, we watch their fleeting fame like a star that falls from the sky. We see the shooting star. It lights up the sky for a little bit and then it fizzles out. And then the industry puts forth another star. 
We watch the same thing with Christian fads. We see them come and go. Promise keepers, the prayer of Jabez, the purpose-driven church is big right now. Within a few more months, it'll begin to fizzle out. And it never ceases to amaze me the lack of discernment and the gullibility of even our contemporary evangelical church. Before we look at the text this morning, I would ask you, whose jersey do you wear? Whose poster do you have on your wall? Whose autograph do you treasure? And as you think about that, may I ask you why? What is the standard that you have used to determine that person's greatness and therefore your commitment to them? This morning in today's text, we're going to discover God's measure of stardom. We're going to see what God esteems. We're going to see a man who received praise from the Lord Jesus himself. We're going to discover, by the way, that God's measure of a man is radically different than the standard of the world. In fact, he praised a man that the world despised. The man we're going to look at was a preacher with a terribly offensive message. A man that broke all the rules of religious tolerance. A man who nothing knew nothing of being seeker-sensitive. A man that was uncompromising, preaching a message of repentance that infuriated most all of his listeners. A man who lived in the wilderness. Even his clothing and his lifestyle was a living protest against the culture. A man who had absolutely no desire whatsoever to be popular, to be prosperous. He had no personal ambition which would have made him a terrible televangelist and certainly an even worse politician in our day. And of course, as you might imagine, he never had very many followers because he refused to tell them what they wanted to hear. This man would never win an election in our day because he spoke only the truth. And he couldn't have cared less if people liked him or not. By the world standard, this man was a loser, a weirdo, a religious nut. Nobody wore his jersey. Nobody really wanted his autograph, or at least few. And certainly nobody collected the cards of John the Baptist. Yet Jesus said, truly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist. This morning, dear friends, I want to take a look at this historical narrative that we find in verses 7 through 15 of Matthew 11, where we will learn about the standard that God uses to measure a man, a man of distinction, a man of noble character a man of spiritual renown and dignity, worthy of divine praise. Let's look at this text and read through it. Just follow along as I read, beginning in verse 7 of Matthew 11. And as these were going away, Jesus began to speak to the multitudes about John. What did you go out into the wilderness to look at? A reed shaken by the wind? 
But what did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing. Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's palaces. But why did you go out? To see a prophet? Yes, I say to you, and one who is more than a prophet, this is the one about whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Truly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet, he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. And from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence and violent men take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you care to accept it, he himself is Elijah. Who was to come, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. God's measure of a man. And as we look at this, I trust you will take a good look inside and measure your own life, because I believe that flowing out of this narrative is more than just a true historical account of what was going on in the first century with Jesus. But also, as we will see, a divine standard that comes forth from the text that can be applied to each of us. Three things we want to look at as we see God's measure of a man First of all, he was fervent in truth. Secondly, he was faithful in calling. And thirdly, he was fearless in conflict. Let me give you the context, because it's been about a month or so since we've been in the text. You will recall that John is now in prison in a dungeon because he has confronted Herod's adulterous marriage to his brother's wife. And as he rots away in this dungeon, he is also confused about Jesus' ministry. He's a bit perplexed. His expectations of messianic glory are not being met, and he's a bit confused. He's wondering, where is the kingdom I faithfully proclaimed for 18 months? I'm now rotting away in this filthy dungeon in an old fortress in Macarius. I'm hungry, I, I, I'm alone, I'm desperate, I'm probably going to die. Where, where is God's promise to proclaim liberty to captives, as Isaiah 61 tells us? When is he going to give the freedom to the prisoners, to pour out vengeance upon our enemies, to comfort all those who mourn by giving them Zion? When is he going to give the oil of gladness for all those who mourn? I don't understand. That's what was going on with John the Baptist. And certainly the conditions of his imprisonment made him vulnerable to the lies of the enemy, not to mention the exaggerated deceptions of the human heart when we are in a desperate condition. Perhaps in his heart, the enemy was communicating all of it was a big lie. Jesus was an imposter. You've played the fool. Well, with his confidence shaken, you will recall in verse two that he sends word by his disciples and the disciples go to Jesus and ask, are you the expected one or shall we look for someone else? Verse three. And then Jesus, in his great love and compassion for his faithful forerunner, 
suddenly puts on a miraculous display of healing and he tells John's disciples, go back and tell him what you've seen. So this, of, of course, would have been wonderful encouragement to John. And though his circumstances did not change, in fact, soon after that, he was beheaded. Even though his circumstance did not change, his perspective changed and his faith was renewed. His doubts were relieved. And now Jesus is turning to the wide eyed multitudes gathered around him. John's disciples have left to go back to tell John what was going on. And all of these people are standing around Jesus. They're overwhelmed with what they have just witnessed. Yet many of John the Baptist's loyal followers were also confused because if you're the Messiah, then where's the kingdom and why is John in a dungeon? And so Jesus reassures them now of John's godly character and conduct. He validates John's ministry. And in the process, we can glean some wonderful insights with respect to God's standard, God's measure of a man. First of all, we notice that John the Baptist was fervent in truth. Notice verse seven. Jesus says, and, or the text says, and, and these, as these were going away, Jesus began to speak to the multitudes about John. And he said, what did you go out into the wilderness to look at? A reed shaken by the wind? In other words, he says, when you people went into the wilderness to hear the prophet, did you go to hear some vacillating, compromising, flexible man that sways in the breeze of human opinion? Is that what you went out to hear? Did you go out to hear some spineless, indecisive fence straddler that equivocates at the first sign of disagreement? Did you go out to hear some people pleaser? Some person that was more concerned about seekers rather than truth? Some ear tickler telling people what they want to hear? Obviously not. Because here was a man that looked the Pharisees and the Sadducees in the eye, spoke the truth, confronted them, and he never blinked. Now, let's apply this for a moment to our lives. Beloved, there is no place for cowards in the Lord's army. No place. In fact, there is nothing more destructive to the truth than those who will trifle with it to gain approval from man. John the Baptist was not like a double-minded man, unstable in all of his ways, James 1.8. John the Baptist was fervent in truth. Fervent meaning he was impassioned, he was enthusiastic, he was intense, he was red hot, he was ablaze for God and his glory. That's all that mattered. It's sad to see so many Christian organizations that are like reeds shaken in the wind. I remember early in the life of this church, I was examining Sunday school curriculum from various places, one in particular. And one very large denomination had their curriculum. And I noticed as I began to look through it that wherever there were texts of great and decisive doctrine, they would spiritualize it or they would not talk about it at all. If there was any place that their curriculum might be offensive to people. They just kind of glossed over it. 
And I noticed that there was really no solid exegesis. There was no solid exposition of the truth. There was no thus saith the Lord type of a feeling in the curriculum. And so I remember knowing some of the people in this organization and I asked them about it and I gave them some examples of it. And the reply that came back, and this is a paraphrase, is, well, there are certain topics we simply need to avoid because they are too divisive. Beloved, that is inconsistent with the word of God, whereas Jude tells us we are to contend earnestly for the faith. That is inconsistent with Acts 20, where the Apostle Paul said that I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. And beloved, I trust that you will never allow a person in this pulpit who will equivocate upon the truth, who will trifle with the truth because somehow somebody might not like what comes from it. Beloved, the messenger does not have the right to edit the message. John the Baptist did not do this. And by the way, the reason for this is to prevent people from being, as Paul said in Ephesians 4, children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness in deceitful scheming. You see, Jesus applauded John for the fervent commitment that he had to the truth. John the Baptist told the self-righteous religious hypocrites that they needed to repent for the kingdom of heaven was at hand. And you will recall that when he saw the Pharisees and the Sadducees coming to him, he said to them, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. And he warned them that all that he warned them all that eternal judgment was coming. In verse 12 of chapter 3, he says that his, referring to the Lord's winnowing fork, is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clear his threshing floor, and he will gather his wheat into the barn, and he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. You see, dear friends, this is the stuff of spiritual maturity. This is God's measure of a man. This is the kind of character that God applauds in a man or a woman. Now, very practically, when you hear some kind of ridiculous heresy or some kind of lies being discussed around the water cooler, what should you do? Very kindly interject the truth. If you have a spouse or a child or some family member living in sin, what should you do? Confront them in love with the truth. Too often, I believe that we fear people more than we fear God. Don't be like a reed in the Judean wilderness, swayed by the winds of human opinion and human reason. Now, a footnote here, a byproduct of being fervent in truth will be a commitment to self-denial. Notice in verse eight, he says, but what did you go out to see a man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's palaces. Now, folks, remember, John the Baptist lived in the wilderness the text tells us that he wore the garment of a camel's hair. He had a leather belt around his waist. He, his food was locusts and honey. He was not a man given to self-indulgence because there were much bigger issues at stake. In fact, many of the religious leaders of Jesus' day wore extravagant, ostentatious robes of the king's court to enhance their standing with the king and to impress the people. But John had no such self-serving desire. 
Man's approval, even the king's approval, held no sway over him. He was not a people pleaser. In fact, John the Baptist had taken a lifelong Nazarite vow. You read about that in number six, the Nazarite vow. And this was a vow of self-dedication, a voluntary separation from the world and a separation unto God. And these particular people were those who stood in a peculiar relation to God. That would include abstaining from strong drink and wine. They were never allowed to touch certain certain things, especially a corpse, anything that would be ceremonial, ceremonially unclean. And of course, they were to let their hair grow. Now, interestingly enough, some Jews uh, would do this for a few months. You read about that historically. And then after a, a few months, they would cut their hair and they would sacrifice it um, and offer it as a sacrifice because the hair symbolized uh, the life of a person. But interestingly, we find in Scripture that there are only three men that are ever mentioned that had a lifelong Nazarite vow. And of course, that would have been Samson, Samuel and John the Baptist. Now, it's important for you to remember This is a very important note. The motivation behind a Nazarite vow was not to somehow earn favor with God and manipulate him and obligate him to allow them to be to enter into the kingdom and so on. Unlike many ascetics that we can read about over history who live bizarre lives of poverty and pain and humiliation. In fact, one author describes some of these ascetics this way, and I quote, Asepsimus wore heavy chains about his neck that forced him to crawl on his hands and knees. For 40 years, the monk Bessarion slept only while sitting in a chair. Macarius the Younger lived without clothes in a swamp for six months and was so severely bitten by mosquitoes that his body looked leprous. Simon Stylites, the most famous of the ancient ascetics, died at the age of 72 after having spent 37 years sitting atop various pillars, the last of which was 66 feet high. When in 1403, the father of the beautiful, respected and wealthy Agnes de Rocher died, she decided to become a religious recluse from the age of 18 until the age of 80. When she died, Agnes spent her life sealed in a small chamber specially built into the wall of a Paris cathedral. A small opening enabled her to hear the mass, receive communion, communion and accept gifts of food from friends, end quote. Beloved, it is always tragic to see the lengths to which people will go to somehow earn their salvation. What a wretched attack that is upon the all-sufficient grace of the atoning work of the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us. So John the Baptist was a man totally dedicated to proclaiming and protecting the truth. Nothing else mattered. And therefore, he was content to voluntarily even have a life of self-denial. Now, imagine the power of the church today if saints had such convictions, such commitment to truth, and such a willingness to deny themselves 
Rather than spending the majority of our resources on ourselves, we would support the church in the battle for the truth. The church would never again struggle, struggle financially. Rather than saints being obsessed with creature comforts, they would occupy themselves with matters of eternal significance and consequence and reward. And rather than squandering our lives away on frivolous entertainment and the things of the world, we would commit ourselves to serving the Lord Jesus. Imagine if that were to happen even in this church. Imagine if we obeyed the words of the Spirit of God through the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 6, where we're told to come out from the midst of the world and be separate. If any man wishes to come after me, the Lord said, he must what? He must deny himself. Imagine that level of self-denial at Calvary Bible Church. Imagine that for four Sundays in a row, we could actually meet our budget. Imagine, and I think of this illustration, imagine if Emily Liu, who is in charge of getting the ladies to help out with meals. Imagine if she were to call me and to say, Pastor, you're not going to believe this, but instead of the same four or five women doing all the work, every woman in the church is willing to help. Imagine if some of you who are toying with immorality and some of you who I fear are living in immorality were to see the heinousness of that and were to repent of that and to get serious about denying yourself, even as Paul said in 1 Corinthians 9, and he said, I am willing to buffet my body and make it my slave. Imagine the type of power that we would have in this church. And imagine if all of you denied yourselves long enough to come on Wednesday nights and to pour out your souls in prayer with the few saints that are here. Imagine what would happen in the lives of the people in this church and the people in this community. Beloved, you will never deny yourself unless you are first fervent for the truth. Only those soldiers that are transformed by grace only those who are committed to the glory of God through proclaiming and protecting the truth will deny themselves and be willing to enter the fray. And only those soldiers will enjoy the spoils of victory and be able to someday lay down their crowns at the foot of the king. So John the Baptist was, first of all, fervent in truth, but he was also faithful in calling. Notice verse 9. But why did you go out to see a prophet? Yes, I say to you, and one who is more than a prophet, this is the one about whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Truly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. May I remind you that John the Baptist was... The one that had the high calling of being the forerunner of the Messiah, the herald of the king. The Jews had not had a prophet for 400 years. And suddenly John the Baptist appears. And indeed, he was the Elijah-like prophet 
prophesied in Malachi 3.1. And he had the privilege of introducing the king. And that's why Jesus says, truly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist. And yet he goes on to let us know that even the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he in that all of us, though we have not had the privilege of introducing the king, we all have the spiritual wherewithal, the gifts and so on to glorify God in ways that even exceed the reality of what we see with John the Baptist. But John was faithful to his calling. He never strayed from it. He knew what God wanted him to do, and he did it. He was filled with the Holy Spirit from his mother's womb. He pointed people to the Lamb of God. He preached a message of repentance. And then, like every great spiritual warrior, he humbly stepped aside, saying, he must increase and I must decrease. As a footnote, I'm always amazed to watch God providentially gift and call and empower his people to fulfill some important role in the body of Christ. And it's sad. So many Christians have no idea what their spiritual gift really is. They have no sense of calling within the church, no sense of purpose, no power. They just kind of float around the edges. They kind of float in and out. And our church is really no different than any other church I've ever been around. There's always just a core people that do most all of the work and all of the ministry. As a footnote, may I just remind you that each Christian biblically has at least one spiritual gift and many times more. And those gifts are discovered and they are developed in the context of the local church. Not in your homes, not out there in your in the marketplace, but in the local church. And you say, well, how can I discover my spiritual gift? Well, first of all, study the possibilities and the purposes of spiritual gifts and then pray for enlightenment that the spirit of God might help you to understand what your gift or gifts might be. And then consider your own natural abilities and and your circumstances, your opportunities and and on the basis of that, then, then get involved in the church. Begin to experiment. Begin to do different things in the church. And then as you're doing different things, solicit feedback from other mature Christians who will be honest with you. And then finally recognize the range of whatever your gift might be. You might have the gift of, of teaching, for example, but maybe it's not as strong of a gift as someone else. You have to know your limitations. And then be willing and content to function within the range of whatever your gifts are. Beloved, this is so important in the battle for truth in which we are engaged as we do battle with the kingdom of darkness here, even in this church. While our time is slipping along, our last observation of God's measure of a man. Indeed, he was fervent in truth. He was faithful in calling. But thirdly, he was fearless in conflict. And certainly this is implied at some level, because not only had he confronted the religious elite, even the king, that's why he was in, dun in the dungeon. But this man continued to boldly proclaim truth, even in the dungeon. You know, I fear that most Christians in the U.S. fail to see the war that is being waged all around us. 
Notice, by the way, what the Lord says in verse 12. And interestingly enough, I would say that at least four or five times a year, either by email or by phone, somebody asks me to explain this verse. And so if you are in that camp, I assure you in a few minutes, you will understand this text. The Lord says, and from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence and violent men take it by force. Now, if I can be technical for just a moment, the key to understanding this verse is to understand the Greek verb biadzo, from which we derive the words suffers violence. In the Greek grammar, this can be interpreted in either what we call the passive or the middle voice. And that is determined, therefore, by the context. If it's in the passive passive voice, this idea of suffers violence, then it is used in an unfavorable sense. And it would be translated, the kingdom is suffering violence and violent men are taking it by force. Well, you know, there's some merit to that in that the scribes and the Pharisees and certainly Herod were all violent men and they were attacking the spiritual dimension of the kingdom of God and so on. Soon they would kill uh, John the Baptist. Soon they would even kill the Messiah. So there's some merit to interpreting this in the passive voice. But I believe the middle voice is better, and I'll tell you why. The middle voice would interpret suffers violence in more of a favorable sense. And it would be translated, the kingdom of heaven is pressing forward violently or vigorously. And forceful men, in other words, men of courage, men of fortitude, of determination, are entering it. This seems to better fit the context, because as you will recall, Jesus has already indicated in Matthew 7 that entering the kingdom is not easy. Remember, there is a narrow gate. And that term, as you will recall, indicates that one must press upon it. One must squeeze into the kingdom. It denotes the idea of tribulation and anguish. It is a gate of brokenness. It is a gate of self-denial. In fact, Jesus said in Luke 13, 23, strive to enter the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. And the word strive, agonizomai, we get our word agony from that. It requires great exertion, exhausting effort. And then after you squeeze through the narrow gate... The way is also narrow. Temptation is great. The world will hate you. It is the way of self-denial, not the way of self-fulfillment. It's always an uphill climb. And it may even cost you your life. So, dear friends, I believe what Jesus is saying here in verse 12, if I could paraphrase it this way. And from the days of John the Baptist, a man of a man fearless in conflict from the days when he first came and boldly preached, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom of heaven is pressing forward vigorously and violently and forceful men of courage, men of determination are entering it as they confess their sins, as they repent of their sins, as they cry out for mercy, as they deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. Real practically, dear friends, no one waltzes into the kingdom of God with a cavalier attitude that says, you know, I don't really know how I got here, but I'm glad I'm here. Here I am. 
No one goes through the narrow gate holding hands with their parents, with their friends, with their spouses. No one enters the kingdom of God with the excess baggage of darling sins, of secret sins, of favorite sins that they refuse to get rid of. No one squeezes through the narrow door of salvation apart from agony of soul, apart from renunciation of the world. Because, dear friends, the kingdom of heaven is pressing forward vigorously, violently, and only desperate men will take it by force. Think of it this way, beloved. When you come to Christ, you do so with a holy violence where you pound at the gates of heaven. You're desperate to be saved. And with unrelenting passion, we beg for undeserved mercy and grace. That is the stuff of genuine Christianity. And then we forcefully enter through the narrow gate, renouncing our former selves, longing to be reconciled with God. And Jesus said, these are the ones who inherit the kingdom. But the violence does not stop at our salvation. No, the narrow way is a way of war. And for every twice-born saint, as we walk through the way of our Christian life, we are forever engaged in mortal combat with the enemies of our soul. Because we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but powers and principalities. There is a violence that is ever-present in the life of a Christian. And a Christian also violently, violently attacks the lusts of his own flesh. As Paul says, he beats his body to make it in subjection to his mind. We are to mortify our flesh, the word of God says. We're to make no provision for the flesh and the lust thereof. We're to flee from youthful lusts, Paul told Timothy. We're to discipline ourselves for the purpose of godliness. All of that is a violence and a forcefulness that is ours as we walk with Christ. And because we are so violently in love with Christ, we will pant after God. We will echo the words of the psalmist that says, Nearness to God is my only good. Nothing else in life matters but God and His glory. And we will therefore long to be nourished by the Word. We will have a craving to hear our Master's voice. And we will have a ferocious attitude that will guard us against anything that might prevent us from hearing the lover of our soul to protect us from doing anything that might dishonor him. Dear friends, this is the holy violence of the Christian life. And moreover, with the intensity of a man pleading for his own life, a true Christian will find himself often on his knees, yea, even on his face before God, pleading for understanding. Striving with God for power, for boldness, for zeal, for love of the lost. Behold, the Lord says, it is a violent life. And beloved, this is the kind of violence that we need in the church today. A holy violence where saints go hard after God. Not this Mickey Mouse churchianity that is so sickening, but rather to go hard after God in earnestness of soul and to take the kingdom by force and to aggressively and relentlessly press the kingdom forward by the infinite power of the Spirit of God. 
And dear friends, whenever you see this kind of holy violence in the life of a man or of a woman, you can make certain that a secret work of grace has occurred in that person's life. And may I ask you, what about you? When you came to Christ, was there a violence there? Was there a vigorous and forceful entering through a narrow gate where you recognized the wretchedness of your own condition and you saw the sword of divine justice looming over your head and you cried out for mercy and for grace that you knew you did not deserve? Or did you just kind of waltz into a church? Waltz up to the front of a church one time, repeat a little prayer. Have you in desperation, in desperation of soul, renounced your former self and pleaded with God for undeserved forgiveness? And if the answer is yes, dear friend, does your character and does your conduct reflect that of John the Baptist? Are you a person that the Lord would be able to say, yes, indeed, this person, this servant of mine is fervent in truth. He or she is faithful in calling and absolutely fearless in conflict. Dear friends, this is what gains the applause of almighty God, contrary to what gains the applause of the world. Oh, dear child of God, may I plead with you as your pastor. Get serious about your Christian life. Can I even put it this way? Get violent with it. And together, let's storm the kingdom of darkness with a holy zeal. Let's raise high the banner of the cross. And let's wield with great precision and power the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. But, oh, dear sinner, if you're here today without Christ, look me in the eye right now. I plead with you for your sake and for the glory of God that you will repent of your sins and today be reconciled to God before it is too late. There is forgiveness at the cross. There is mercy and grace available to anyone who calls upon the Lord to be saved. Don't delay. May Jesus have mercy upon your soul. Let's pray. Father, I pray that the words that have come forth today are your words. And I pray for those who have ears to hear that indeed they will hear and they will be forever changed because of it. And Lord, for those who think that all they have just heard is mere foolishness from the mouths of some lunatic. I pray, Lord, that you will have mercy upon their soul and that you will sweep over them with a conviction that gives them no rest until they, too, see the reality of their own sinfulness and the glory of the cross. For I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to pastor, Bible teacher, and author David Harrell. For more information, or to order additional tapes or CDs of Pastor Harold's messages, please visit cvctn.org 
or call 615-746-0113.